morning, everybody. Pleasure to be with you today. We're almost done, almost. We're getting there on the first half of David's story. So we're, we're close. <laughs> so this morning we're going to be, in just a second, in 1 Samuel chapter 30. So if you want to turn your way there. Um, but I'm going to give you two quick announcements beforehand. So you're turning to 1 Samuel 30. Two things. Number one, um, I am about to take, not about, but the week before Memorial Day... Uh, right before officially summer starts, Kelly and I take our fellows to, to the lake, to Smith Mountain Lake for a week, and we need a lake house. So if you have a lake house and you're not using it that week, um, let me know that. I would be grateful. Every year, it's amazing for seven or eight, six, seven, eight years, whatever it is, people at this church just have lake homes, and they're so gracious and generous, and we need a lake. How, well, there's a lake. We just need the house. Um, <laughs> That week before Memorial Day. So if you have a lake house or if you have a friend that loves Jesus and might like fellows, then we would be so grateful to talk to you about that. If we could borrow your house for, for uh, we'd go like Monday through, or Tuesday through, what do we do, Kelly? Tuesday through Friday, the week before Memorial Day. So we'd love to talk about that. Second, um, next week we're going to do something special. Just want you to know, um, we put it, it's in the announcements already, but in case you didn't capture it yet, this hour, next week, I will be gone. Um, we're heading to Belize with the fellows. All for Jesus, so back up off me. And, um, but we're going to be doing an ordination, and it won't be in this room. It'll be in the main sanctuary. Friend of, a friend of Quigg's, some Scottish dude with a great Scottish brogue and a kilt. We're going to, like, ordain him into the ministry. And so if you, we'd love to invite you to come to the sanctuary for that ceremony. And then the following week, we'll be back in here to, to finish First Samuel. That's coming up. Cool? All right, so we're going to be in 1 Samuel to this morning, chapter 30. And this is a rough passage for David. As we kind of unpack it and see it, we're going to watch him walk through something that had to be just excruciatingly difficult. You might recall, for, you know, months on end, he's like, you know, trying to just not get killed, right? He's trying to avoid Saul's spear, and he trusts the Lord, and he trusts the Lord, and then his faith kind of falters, right? And he's like, I got to leave. And he goes off to hide in this Philistine land. And then he kind of rallies there. And you might think, there's this, you might think that it's going to let up. But it doesn't let up. And this, this is a really tough moment. And it's long. We've got a lot to say. So we're going to jump into it. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 1. David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now, the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They'd attacked Ziklag and burned it. They'd taken captive the women who were in it, both young and old. They killed none of them but carried them off as they went their way. Now, pause. What, what this means is they just got home. Ziklag is their, is their camp. It's where their wives and their children are. And so when it says um, that the Amalekites had come and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both young and old, that's not like random women, okay? This is their, their wives. This is David and all of his men. They show up and their families are gone. Can you just imagine, come home, and everybody's gone. Your wife's gone, your daughter's gone, your son's gone, everybody's gone, okay? When David, so take a look at verse 3. When David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives have been captured, Ahinoam and Abigail, widow of Nabal. What is your impression of David's men, this fighting force? If you were to place them on this kind of 
like on a spectrum from like sissies to like rugged tough guys. Where do you put them? These are like men, all right? These are like, they'll kill you with a look. Like, these are like a bunch of rugged, tough, out in the wilderness, walk long distances, kill a lot of people, guys, okay? And what does it say about them in this text? Weep. They wept until they were exhausted. They come back, and they're, they're, these are like, you know, this is like William Wallace's men, all right? These are like a bunch of tough guys, and they are totally devastated. Because everything and everyone that they love is gone, maybe forever. Lord knows what is happening to their wives this very minute. What is, I mean, it is just miserable, okay? And so how do you think they're going to respond? Once they're done weeping, what do you think comes next? Yeah. But who do they want to get before they get them? Do you know? Yeah. This is bad. Okay, watch what happens. This is just rough. This is so, so bad. This attack on David's base. Oh, by the way, why did it happen? Why do you think, why did they come in and wipe everybody out? Because David's been kicking their butt forever, right? This is retaliation, and it's retaliation against David, right? So they, they're going to put two and two together, and they're going to realize, like, this, this sense of, uh, you know, victory that they've had, it just all evaporates in a, in a heartbeat. And it says in verse 6, David was greatly distressed. Look at verse 6. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit. Why? What does it say? Because they're kids. Yeah, interesting. I'm sure they were distressed about their wives as well, but this, the more vulnerable, their children... Like, what are you doing? Like, can you just um, literally think about this? You have children, Mike? You have kids? Can you imagine? This would be miserable. Okay? And so they want to stone David to death. So now David, by the way, his, his family's also gone. He's constantly being chased by Saul. His family's just been eradicated. And now his men, his protection, his guys all want to stone him to death. He is in a dark and desperate place. Okay? Now, do you remember chapter or two ago? Saul was in a dark and desperate place, and he had no hope, and he was anxious, and he was worried, and didn't know what to do. And what did he do? He goes to the witch of Endor. He goes to this medium. Well, you're supposed to think about that. You're supposed to think when Saul was in this thing, and he's like miserable and hopeless, and he's terrified, and he's frightened, and everybody hates him, he goes to the witch of Endor. Think about that when we read the next line. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him, and each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters, but... David found strength in the Lord his God. What's he going to do? Do you know, how, you know what he's going to do? What is it? Somebody loud. He's going to get the ephod. What on earth is the ephod? Can you remind us, Bob? It's uh, got a couple, we think, stones on it. It, had the, the, it, it was a way that the high priest would allow for the, uh, to discern what God's will was. That's right. As far as we know, it's like, Funky rocks, some kind of dice, some kind of a yes or no question. Not quite as goofy as like a magic eight ball, but some limited ability that the Lord really speaks through it, right? There's something to it. And so David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. And so Abiathar brought it to him and David inquired of the Lord. And what's the question? Shall I pursue the raiding party? Will I overtake them? And the answer is go get them. Pursue them. You will certainly overtake them. And succeed in the rescue. Okay? So 
Why is it that David is able to find strength in the Lord his God, but Saul wasn't? What are we to, what, as, we're, as we're trying to stare at this guy's life and make sense of it, what's going on? What's the difference between these two men? Why does he find strength? John? Okay, so to a certain extent, it's because Saul has already disqualified himself from the game and not in, and not in a way from David. That is true. Dan? Yeah, I was just going to say, because the Spirit of God led David to do that, it was through his strength that David could turn to him, and Saul didn't have that. That's right. Saul had cast away this access to the Lord, and so the Lord had cast him away. And David was, I mean, even though he's going to stumble, he's going to fall, your life will always be this pattern. It's never going to change. There will always be a, a, a sign curve to your life, right? It's sin and repentance, sin and repentance, sin and repentance. Nobody lives in a state of constant repentance, right? But you also don't want to live in a state of constant sin. And what you want to do is change that interval from sin, repentance, sin, repentance, to more of like sin, repent, sin, repent. And David is done that. You're going to see David screw up all the time. But he is, he is always maintaining this connection to the Lord. He has yielded to the Spirit. God has been generous to give him his Spirit, and so he stays in it, right? Okay, other differences you want to observe between Saul and David? There were a handful of hands, and I didn't get to everybody. We good, good, good? No, no, okay, keep going. Okay, so David, he's not going to reach out to the Philistine army, right? He's been there, he's done this, but he can't. He's not going to go get them and they're not going to go with him. And so he has to reach out to Yahweh, and he does. He gets out these weird rocks, and he summons, and he asks a question, Lord, what do you want me to do? And it's interesting, isn't it? Both times, these, both of these men, were, it's a great big contrast game. Both men seek supernatural means. Like, I don't know what to do. It's beyond my skill. They both reach into the supernatural, but David's going to reach after Yahweh, and Saul's going to go after this, this witch. He's going to go consult the dead on behalf of the living. You're meant to see, like, ah, I want to be like this guy, not like that guy. And you're meant to see this guy, David, is anticipating the godly one, is anticipating the anointed one. He is setting the pattern for what the Messiah will be when he comes, right? It's not just, we're not playing some big morality game. We're trying to learn to see what Messiah will be like. Zach? Outside of the intent of using these things to communicate to whether God or the dead, is there any specific reason why these ephods in themselves seem to be the exception to the rule or as opposed to using other forms of item? Of divination or something? Yeah. Okay, great question. So there's one ephod, and it has been given to the priest. Like, so there's, well, there's like this one person who is the chief representative for God to speak to the people. And so, yes, it is not... The, what's different is all these other divination tools. Okay, I'm, I'm not going to, I would not classify the ephod as a divination tool, but all these other supernatural communication devices, all right, is that okay, um, are not talking to the Lord. They're consulting the dead. And the Lord has said, you know, no, you wanna, if you want to reach me, this is how I want you to do it. Through the priest, through the one that I have set aside, that I have called, that, that I have placed my hand on him and anointed him, you can trust him as opposed to all the sea of, of phonies. Make sense? Okay. So then it goes on. Let's take a look at chapter 30, verse 9. So David and the 600 men came to the, I'm not sure how to say this, Besser, Besor, Ravine, where some stayed behind. And for 200 men, 200 of them, were too exhausted to cross the ravine. But David and the 400 men continued the pursuit. Okay. Notice those 200. They're going to be significant later. Just kind of setting the story. There's 600 guys, 400 are going to go, 200 are too beat, and they stick around. So hold on to them for, for the time being. And then in verse 11, 
They're on their way, and they find an Egyptian in a field, and they bring him to David. They gave him water to drink and food to eat, part of a cake of pressed figs, and two cakes of raisins. He ate and was revived, for he had not eaten any food or drunk any water for three days and three nights. And David asked him, to whom do you belong and where do you come from? He said, I'm an Egyptian, a slave and a Malachite. And my master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. We raided the Negev on the Carathites and the territory belonging to Judah and the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag. And David asked him, can you lead me down to this raiding party? And he answered, swear to me before God that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master, and I will take you down to them. Okay, now, I don't know if it felt to you like I was reading a lot there, but it felt to me like I was reading a lot. Like, and I'm thinking as I'm reading it, blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't care what you fed him, right? Do you have that sense that, like, sometimes in the Bible you read, like, John is very fond of this. John will give, like, all these details. And you're like, dude, I'm not sure that really advances the story. Like, why so many details? But I'm not God. God is, and he's got his purposes. So why do you imagine in this story, imagine, it's like, all your wives are dead, maybe. All your children have been taken into slavery. We don't know if we're going to see them again. Oh, but curiously, they ate figs made out, you know, raisin cakes. You know, like, why in the midst of this tension and this eagerness do we slow the train, slow down, and give us all the details about this Egyptian guy? There, there is a reason, okay? But what is it? Why is that? Why the bogging down in the details? Chris? I thought it's sometimes used contextually to show the, the, the context that you're in. Yes. Slowing down, and they're saying, hey, we're going to show, you know, help you and really show you good community and commune with you so that you will know that we're being very genuine in our seeking for some sort of way out of this terrible mess. Okay, so yes, there's, in the, these details, despite the fact that I am like, just have impatience built into my, the, my very soul, right? He's giving us these, there's, there is information being conveyed that is meaningful that he wants us to get that there's something about the context, there's things we want to get. Mike, do you have a sense of what it is? Well, also, could it just be strategic? I mean, you're going through the wilderness, and you find a random person, and it's like, all right, which way did they go? But if he's so faint, yes. first to get him revived. Yes. All right, can you direct us? Because we need help, because we're not sure which way they went. That's right. So it's kind of maybe, but it does show community and kindness. They could have just killed it, but maybe it's strategic. It's, it's all of that. Everything that Mike said. So there's, there's a strategic value. This guy, this Egyptian guy, might be our best hope to find them. And so the more satiated, the more alive, you know, the more less parched he is, the better information we may get, right? And so there's a strategic value. That's absolutely the case. But you said something else that I think was really significant. It's also just that he's being kind to him, right? And remember, everything about this book is not about the history of Israel. This book is about the person of Right? And I think what the author here wants to show us is that even when David could be like, you know, put a sword to his temple and demand that he tell us the answer because our wives and our children are on the line, that's not his orientation. God has been very, very clear. How are we to treat the foreign and the orphan and the widow? And in fact, when he talks about it, this, where's this guy from? He's from Egypt. What is, what's the meaning of Egypt to the Israelites? Slavery. This is where we were slaves, and it's when God talks about, hey, you be nice, you be nice, when you've got a foreigner among you, because do you remember what it was like when you were the foreigner? And so to this Egyptian from the land where they were slaves, David shows an, an inordinate level of kindness and care and concern. And we're meant to see, but we're meant to watch this story and be like, man, 
David is like, even in distress, even when his men want to stone him, even when his wives and children are like, their lives hang in the balance, he is obedient to the Torah, which says, you be nice to the, to the foreigners among you. He's he meant to be like, wow, David, you are being unusually kind in a situation where you could be excused not to be. Mm. And we, we're supposed to capture that, okay? Catherine. Sensory evocative, yeah, that's right. And that's exactly what's going on. That we would see that, man, this, there, is this, there is a lavishness to the grace of this man even under these terrible conditions, right? Dan? There's also a literary device working here that, yeah, I mean, these guys were undoubtedly like, we got to get those nasty Amalekites, which we're thinking too, go get them. Come on, let's go. Go kill some people. We have to wait. We, the reader, have to wait. They, the, the 600, 400 have to wait. And so there's a, a parallel here that actually takes us emotionally a little more into That's right. of, of David's men. That's right. That's exactly right. And, and it's not clear if David's, if the 400 guys are getting raisin cakes either, right? <laughs> like, sincerely, he, is he being kinder to, to this, you know, dead, near, near dead Egyptian or, than he is to his own men uh, because he's a foreigner, because he's weak, because he's needy? It's amazing. Tommy? I was thinking actually along those lines that instead of, um, you know, he's extending kindness that he doesn't have to, in fact, he's actually taking a big risk that his men wanted to stone him because of perceived mismanagement very likely that he didn't leave the city better defended or that they've lost so many things because he didn't take care of it. And so here he is, the servant of his enemy, extending out his food and more of their provisions when already so much has been taken. So if it goes poorly, this is his head back. It's totally true. Absolutely. What kind of microphone are you using right now? <laughs> Did that not feel like he was an inch away from you? Yes. <laughs> if Charles Spurgeon would like never, Charles Spurgeon could preach to 10,000 people without a microphone, and he would think that a guy make like me would just sit down, little boy. Like he would not, hey, but you would be welcome at his church. It's beautiful. Like, let's go. It's so good. All right, John. <laughs> It would make sense that he that's right. And so there's great. There's 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 both these sides. Even though, even though Mike framed it out. There's the there's strategic value. This is our best hope to find the Amalekites and therefore everyone and everything that we love. And there's a lavishness to it, right? There's a Jack Bauer version. You know, you could just put a put a sword to his neck and say, "Tell us." But he takes a different approach. Okay, one more, and then we'll keep going. In contrast to the fact that his master left him behind for three days because he was ill. That's right. It's exactly right. Who are you dealing with? That's right. That his own, he, David is kinder to his enemies than his enemies are to their own. And we're meant to, all of that is meant to like elevate David in our mind of like, man, this guy, like even in it, he is, there's a kindness and a gentleness. And see also, we're looking to understand what the Messiah will be like. That's meaningful, all right? We gotta keep going. Okay. Ellen, then we gotta keep going. 
For sure, and and they may want to kill him, but they also know that he's probably their best hope to get back their wives and kids, right? So there's a little bit of that going on. Okay, so verse 16. So this Egyptian dude leads David down to where they were. They scatter over the countries, and they, and they find them, right, the, the Amalekites, scattered over the countryside, eating, drinking, and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. So you got to recognize this. We come in, and we've got 400 men that are exhausted and despairing, and they've traveled for however long to get there. And then we got an un, I don't think we've got a counted number of a bunch of drunk guys that are reveling because of their party. And so what's going to win? And if you got a battle between a bunch of exhausted men and a bunch of drunk men, <laughs> who's going to win? Right? Well, we'll see. Take a look. So David... Uh, let's see. So David fought them. Wait. Yeah, yeah. David fought, verse 17. David fought them from dusk until the evening of the next day. That's like all, that's like a 24 hour, that's like all night. Dusk is like sunset to sunset, right? From dusk until evening of the next day. And none of them got away except for 400 young men who rode off in camels and fled. So now check this out. How many are in the party that's attacking? Okay, and in the other party, they kill everybody except for 400. So how big was the party, right? If, 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 if 400 is the leftovers, nobody escaped. Yeah, oh, it's 400 people. But, but you only had 400 people in your army, right? So this, I think we're saying that they, they whooped up on them, right? And verse 18, David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives, Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock, saying, this is David's plunder. Right? So you got some drunk guys, you got some exhausted guys, and the exhausted guys win. Because they care more, right? In their drunken and celebratory state, those guys were out of battle formation. They weren't, they weren't ready. They were scattered over the countryside, it says. And so they just blow them up. They wipe them out. So back to eight. Yeah. David had, had asked the Lord, should I go? Shall we do it? We'll go, and you'll certainly overtake them. So David had to have that already in mind. That we'll That's right. It's so helpful to know that, right? <laughs> like, don't, don't you wish, like, yeah, it's going to happen. It's going to be good. You're like, All right, let's go. So David goes in, and he wins, and, he, and they slaughter him. Um, and it's interesting because you got to remember this. Everything that David is doing here, there's always this two-level. Why is David fighting the Amalekites? What's his, what's his immediate motive? Get his family back, right? And all the men, and also keep himself from getting stoned to death, right? But there is this older, higher obligation that he's, that he's living out. Do you remember this? The Amalekites, they're not supposed to be any Amalekites, right? We're in this mess because you didn't kill the Amalekites last time when we tried. And so David is not only going to wipe out the Amalekites so he can get his people, but he's going to wipe out the Amalekites because they are the long-standing enemies of God and it's time to get it done, right? And so he's always functioning, not just at his immediate level, but he is. He's, been, he's, been, he's not yet been 
you know, inaugurated, but he's been anointed the king of Israel. And so he's going to accomplish God's purposes, even though he's beat, even though he's wiped out. Cat. Remind me who it was that was supposed to kill Saul. Yeah, Saul was supposed to do it, and, and, and he didn't. Yeah. So they're supposed to clear the land of all these enemies because they're just going to keep coming. It's still 400. Yeah, but here's what's, here's what's interesting. One of the commentaries I looked at said this is basically the last time you're going to hear mention of the Amalekites as the enemies of God for like a long, 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 long time. They, they show up way down the road later, but this is a, David is not just a, David just doesn't just win the skirmish. It's not just the battle victory. This is, this is the war, and he wipes him out. He gets his people back, awesome, but he also is accomplishing what God had called the kings to accomplish, but Saul wouldn't do. Jennifer? Just notice it says 400 young men. It doesn't say 400 young Amalekites. And the person they found was a young man, so maybe those were 400 of the slaves. Oh, that's interesting. That could be. It could be non-Amalekites, other Egyptian slaves that they had. That's a good point. I had not noticed that, but that might be so. So that's a good word. Okay? So they get everybody. And did you notice, what does David get for booty? Everything. He just takes it all, right? So you get your own wife, you get your own sons and daughters, which is, yeah, that's fair. But, but all the sheep, all the, I don't know, what are their camels, does it say? The flocks and herds, whatever they are, David gets it all, okay? Notice that, okay? It's David's, it's David's army, it's David battle, David gets it all. But that's not going to be the end of the story, okay? He gets it all, it's all his, and once it's his, he can do with it whatever he wants. We'll get a little more insight into that. As we go. Okay? Y'all doing all right? I know there's a lot. We're just kind of chopping through this. Okay. Three, uh, 30, 21. So, they get back. Remember, who do we leave behind? 200 dudes. 200 dudes. Why didn't they come? They were tired. <laughs> I've been tired. I know what that's like. I don't want to go. Okay? So, how do you think the 400 who just, you know, bore the sweat and injury of the battle, how do they feel about the 200? They, don't, they are slackers, right? I mean, it's fine. They can have their wives too, but that's all, okay? So 21, David come back to the 200 men who have been too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind at the, the sore ravine. And they came out to meet David and the people with him. And as David and his men approached, he greeted them. But all the evil men and troublemakers among David's followers, okay, time out. Those evil men and troublemakers, what have they been doing? They've been fighting the battle. They've been out there in the grime and in the sweat. They've been doing it, but the rabble-rousers. And that is kind of, remember, these are all the tough guys, right? The evil men and troublemakers among David's followers said, well, they didn't go out with us. We're not going to share with them the plunder we recovered. They can have their wives and kids, you know, and go. And look what David does. This is so, everything he does here is this upside-down kingdom. David replied, no, 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 my brothers, you must not do that. With what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and handed, us, handed over to us the forces that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All will share alike. And David made this a statue and ordinance for Israel from that day to this. Okay, so let's talk about this. What, what is behind David's conciliatory attitude here? 200 guys needed a nap. 400 guys went and risked their lives. And David's like, even Stephen. What's going on with that? Cat? Mercy of God. Okay, okay, mercy of God. Unpack that. 
Well, David had the mercy, and he always has uh, mercy and grace from the Lord. Yes. So he wants to give that out to the other people. Yes. Okay. That's exactly right. But I'm not sure that the implications of that are as clear as I want to be. So we're going to try to unpack. Okay, Chris and then Catherine. Chris. Close to uh, love your neighbor as yourself in the fact that in those words by Christ, I think it's more speaking about the church as a whole and that everyone's assigned different roles. Yep. That regardless of your role, if you are one church, you want to work together and spit the best, obviously split the bounty accordingly. That is absolutely true. Okay. The body is a unit made up of many parts. We have different body parts, and we do different things. And we dignify, we honor those that stayed back to protect the gear, those that stayed back to do other things, we honor them. That is absolutely true. I think that's in the second position, so there's something that comes before it, but it's absolutely true. that There is this Christian thing of, like, you could say this one does all the work. Well, hang on a second, hang on a second. This, these, there are parts of the body behind the scenes that are accomplishing things that we don't see. So, yes, but I want to leapfrog that with something else. Catherine? I don't know if this is it, but... Oh, uh, yeah. The same thing. Yes. And then, um, okay, so that this is also, a, Jesus is very strong on this principle. God is gracious, and he can distribute his wealth any way he sees fit. And we who are recipients of grace have no place to stand and complain that they got, quote, more grace, right? We don't get to do that, okay? But there's something else that's in the text, and it's, and it's, it's embedded in what you said, Kat, but I want to make sure that it's as clear as we can. Is, is, isn't David nation-building? Uh, what do you mean? He realizes that he's the anointment. Yes. He, he's going to have to bring Saul's people in. Oh, yeah. And, and he has to give his people the understanding at that point. He, that you're going to have to merge and everyone's going to have to be. Okay, yes. And we're going to see that more in the next kind of paragraph. We're going to see a little bit more of that. But there is this Lincoln-esque. Remember, you know, what, what was... What was so famous about Lincoln as, as he wins the Civil War that that's right with malice toward none and charity toward all right there's this there's this one of the, the tragedy the tragedy probably of, of, of Lincoln's assassination is that his vision of reconstruction in the South was infinitely more compassionate and merciful than what actually happened like when Lincoln was dead it's so, it's so crazy like Lincoln was killed by by a southern sympathizer, but he did not realize that when he did, he killed their best hope for a gracious reconstruction. If you read the second inaugural address, it does not reflect what happens after his death, right? So David has this perspective. We're going to see more of that in a second. But here, here's the key idea that I want you to grab. Look, look at what he says. There's theology embedded in this. In verse 23, David replied, No, my brothers, you must not do that, meaning hoard for yourself, and restrict from others. You must not do that with what? With what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and handed over to us the forces that came against us. Did the 400 think that's what just happened? No. What do they think just happened? We kicked their butts. It was my sword, right? It was my sweat. It was my effort. It was my work. And this is how we, do you not think that? Are you ever grateful for your paycheck? Or do you think, I'm not grateful to anybody. I busted my butt for this money, right? Are you grateful for whatever you have in your life? Or do you think, no, 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 I am. Look, behold, the self-made man, <laughs> right? That, that's, how, that's how we think. I won the war. It's mine. 
And David, David says, and I quote, no, no, no. You must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He protected us and handed over to us the forces that came against us. Real quick, go to Deuteronomy 8. Flip over. This is my favorite passage about money in the whole Bible. In Deuteronomy 8, he says this. So it's, it's kind of throughout. We'll just kind of hit it and go on. Uh, let's see. Uh, da, 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 verse 2. Remember, remember, notice, see, perceive, don't forget. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you, to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you. The man does not live on bread alone, but in every word that comes from God. Your clothes didn't wear out. Your feet didn't swell. Isn't that weird? Did you notice that? Like, stuff lasted for a long time, okay? And then toward the end, he says, now we're bringing you into a place of prosperity, where there will be wealth, and you can dig copper out of the hills, and everything's going to be amazing. And he says, watch what happens. Verse 16. He gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your fathers had never known, to humble and to test you so that in the end it might go well with you. Here it is, verse 17. You may say to yourself, quote, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. That's exactly where David's men are. It's mine. I did it. I made it. But remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and win battles. Right? And so it confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers, as it is today. So when David is saying to these guys, listen, these other men are going to get a share, just the same as yours. They feel like it's coming out of their pockets. And they're losing what belongs to them. And David is saying, no, 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 no. It was never yours. It was the Lord's. And he has seen fit to give you this. And to give them as well this. There's deep theology embedded in what he's doing, right? All right, John. Notice also that apparently out of the 400, none of them were killed. That's right. They survived, right? He's like, you should be happy that you're alive and, you're, and you get your wife back, you know? There's a lot going on here. And everything else is bonus because God is gracious and kind to you. Okay, Catherine. right? And we see over and over and over again, David is upside down. And that, by the way, you, have you noticed that Jesus is weird? Jesus always does the weird thing, just endlessly. That's, that is very much like David, right? What, what, you, they used to, used to drive me crazy. What would Jesus do? Answer, you have no idea. <laughs> right? What would Jesus do if he's, at a, if he's at, a, at, a, at a wedding and they run out of wine? What would he do? Make like 120 gallons of wine when everybody's already lit. That's what he would do, okay? You never know. He, the kingdom is upside down and everything's strange. And David is doing that. At every turn, he's like, you know what? Here's an Egyptian. Let's give him a bunch of figs. Let's, let's take care of him. Let's just be unspeakably gracious to him. These guys that were too, too sleepy to come to fight the battle, eh, like, they can get as much as everything too. There's, a, there's an upside downness to the way that he leads. So it drives people crazy, and it kind of drove people crazy about Jesus as well. Anne? Um. This was in a sermon by Dave Wilkerson, and I loved it. Those men had a job. They were to stay by the stuff. Yes. 
and the way uh, Dave preached it, his wife went, said, you just go out and you win all these people to the Lord, and, and I just stay here. And he referred back to this, and he said, no, yes. you stay by the stuff, you get the same reward, I'm just the one that God's called to that's right, that's, and, that's, and that is exactly, I think, where, what Chris was saying, right? There's, the body's a unit made up of many parts. There's different roles, and David is honoring, he, I mean, his language here, he honors their work. He says, um, the share of the men who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. They weren't just having nappy time. They, they had a role in the game, right? Okay, Mike? Well, and also, they could be reminiscent of the way they handled when they came to the promised land, so... One of the cities when Moses uh, or Joshua and them took it, they gave all to God. Then the next one they divided against the men of war. And then by the, I think it was the third city, then the whole of the nation got it as far as when they conquered. There's this passage in there in Joshua, um, I believe is where it's at. And that he, it's kind of like it's, hold on, get the report up front. But in this context, hey, they're doing what Moses already did. We've already conquered. Yes. God got his tithe. The warriors have gotten theirs now. We're sharing evenly across that and kind of picturing what was done yes. when the nation came into the country again, kind of resetting. Okay, so you know something about, I don't remember that, the passage that you're referring to, but what you're saying is exactly right. This is, this is true. That, and, and we're about to see the reference to David's even broader kind of liberality and distribution of wealth. And so David consistently shows a very high consciousness of what the law demands, what the Torah demands, of how we treat people. And now we're going to see not just those who stay with supplies, but now, remember how he took all the booty? He took it all for himself. He's about to give it all away. Take a look. In verse 26, when David arrives in Ziklag, he sent some of the plunder to the elders of Judah, who were his friends, saying, here's a present for you from the plunder of the Lord's enemies. It's not, it was never David's either. He takes it all, but he's just holding on to it. It's the Lord's, right? This is plunder from the Lord's enemies. And he sent it to those who are in Bethel and Ramoth Negev and Jatir and those in, I don't know how to say any of these places, Aror and Sifmoth and Eshtimoah and Rachel and to those who are in the towns of the Jerhamelites and the Kenites and to those in Horma and Borshan and Athach and Hebron and to those in other places, as we haven't mentioned enough, where David and his men had roamed, right? And besides the fact that I undoubtedly butchered all those names, what you're meant to see is just lavish distribution. Hmm. It's not David's. He's not lining his own pockets. He, is, he, he goes out and the Lord uses him to defeat the enemies and then to bless the people of God. Right? The share of those who save the supplies is the same as this. And he is going to just be lavish and generous. Right? Dan? This is also really politically expedient as he is building a caucus within the nation to support. That's right. Absolutely. So we are, we are, he, he is, he is being gracious and he is kind and he's being strategic and shrewd, right? He is, he is establishing, it's, it's about time to go. And so he is currying favor everywhere he goes. He's going to be the sort of a king that blesses the people and people like kings that bless them, right? And so he's wise and he's getting it all done. Terry? <coughs> Excuse me. And then also says, um, in all the places where David and his men had roamed. Yeah. Been to those places, and I'm sure that they had helped. You know, if you're traveling, that's right. Hundred men that you're bound to need help. I would. For sure. So this massive horde of large men shows up in town, and they start eating your sheep, right? right? And so now he's paying them all back. 
right? So there's just wisdom and there's strategy and there's graciousness to all of, all of this. Okay, now we've got about three or four minutes, so here's your job. This whole thing points us to Messiah. We've mentioned a couple of different things, but how does this, what is this story teaching us? What is the Spirit of God meaning to reveal about what Messiah will be like? What are some of the, maybe we hit, we hit a couple. There may be others that you're thinking of we haven't said out loud. How does this anticipate Messiah? How is he like? Love your enemies. Very much so. So this kindness to the Egyptian. Does Jesus have anything to do with loving your enemies? My goodness. Okay, we're going to get a bunch of, we're going to get a list. List. You'll be rewarded for your suffering. Okay, how, where do you see that? Well, they fought. Okay. So this is victory that he brings. The people, you know, that supported him probably couldn't have it that easy either. Yeah, I imagine so. We'll suffer in our lives, but we'll be rewarded when we go be the Jesus. Okay, that's all true. That's good, Kat. I like this. DFP? Jesus rescues those who are captured, enslaved, enthralled. That's right. Jesus home. That's right. Just as the Messiah goes and he, just as David goes to bring them back, this is what Jesus, he is on a giant rescue mission, right? And we see that. He's going to go win the victory. David risks his life to make the captives free. I mean, did I say that? David risks his life? If I'm, did I missay that? David risks his life to make the captives free. And Jesus, when he shows up, is going to give his life to make the captives free. And that's one of the things that you want to you learn to see is that whatever, whatever these pictures of Messiah are, they're always diminished compared to the reality. Jesus fulfills and overfills the pictures over and over and over again. He is not merely like David. He is the greater David. He, he fills up and overfills the picture that David gives. A couple more. What else does he do? Louder. Tommy, can you hear me? <laughs> I was saying that the other man on the cross received basically the same salvation that the disciples received. Yes. The equality of grace. That's very much so. We, we want, like, this is Peter struggles through this. He's like, man, what about us? We've been busting our butts. We left home and family and everything for you. And, uh, and we struggle when there's like his graciousness to others is kind of annoying to us. Right? Very much fulfilled in Jesus' life. How else? How else? The battle belongs to him. It's his. It's all of him. Man, we are so quick to take credit and to think that it's us. But the Lord is the one who wins the victory. Right? Whatever else it is that we're doing, it is the Spirit of God alive in us bringing it about. And we must never step away from that. Joel? So David's been anointed king, but he has not been yet sort of coronated. Absolutely. We see not, we, in David, you not only see this, the dominant victorious one, but the humble one who doesn't even take credit. It was the, it's the Lord who has done this. And you see that in Jesus in a way that's almost bizarre, right? Jesus is like, I can do nothing the Father does. Uh, really, Jesus? You really don't think that you might be able to pull this off? But he lives an absolutely dependent life of humility. Crazy. And David absolutely is a, a, an, an image, an anticipation of that. Okay, Unmas. A couple more. Chris? I just want to point out the, the kind of rephrasing of, as we see here with uh, Moses in Deuteronomy, that we've already heard these words. We already know these, and given David doesn't have all of the uh, Israelites that he's got with him, but he's still just focused on these same words. But then when Christ comes, he uses parable after parable to show us that we have no idea, despite how long we've re referenced the Bible, 
we don't know anything. Uh, and he needs to just flip and rephrase it again. But it's already been said. But We're so the slow, the slowness to learn, right? Yeah, and is that what you mean? Like that we, that, that, that David is gonna, David is gonna demonstrate this pattern over and over again, and nobody, his followers don't, they still haven't caught on. And Jesus, you're gonna see in his life as well. This like he'll teach things to the people, to his disciples even, and they're like so, so he says slow of heart to hear it, to believe it, to understand it, and that same thing. David is really playing a different game than any of his men are playing. Okay, I'll give you one more real quick one. I love this. this is Ephesians four. To each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned us. This is why it says, quote, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Right? This is what Messiah does. David wins the victory, and then he takes all the spoils of war, and he distributes them to others. And when Christ comes and wins the victory, he turns to us who have been rescued by him, and he gives us gifts. Just this generous liberality that just dominates his life. Okay. You guys did a really, really, did you feel that? You guys did a good job, right? We've been at this for weeks and weeks and weeks because I want, just want to learn as a community, how do we read this book in a way that reminds us, that points us to Christ? You guys just crushed that. That was glorious. Okay, we're going to stop. And then next week, um, ordination in the sanctuary, so don't come to this room. Week after that, we'll be back to the Samuel story, the David story. All right, see you guys. Sure.